Homestyle Green, episode 145. This week we're talking to Dennis Dowling in Queenstown about building finely crafted, high-performing homes. How does he do it? G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. This is the podcast dedicated to building a better place to live. And I am speaking this week to Dennis Dowling, and I came across Dennis because of our great sponsor for the show, Proclimber. And I chatted to Proclimber and said, hey, look, it's it's all well and good me telling everyone about Proclimber products and how good they are for um, building a good performing envelope, an airtight envelope, and one that's going to deal with moisture appropriately. But I want to find out from someone who actually uses the product each day, and that would be most likely a builder. So Proclimber came back to me with a couple of builders that they uh, and architects that they recommended, and Dennis was one of those. And when I started, uh, I contacted Dennis to get a, a bit of a testimonial, and I said, look, I've just got to record this because what he was saying about the way he builds and why he builds the way he does I think uh, there's some gold in there for anyone who's looking at building beyond the building code uh, and they want to achieve a higher performance home, energy efficient and healthy house for themselves or for someone else. And that's what this show is all about. So I did record the conversation and I started out by asking Dennis why he does what he does. So um, I've had the the pleasure um, of being able to complete and construct every type of project that I aspired to build. Um, and I was able to do that quite early in my construction career. And I've also gone through and seen the challenges of running a much larger organization and did not find that an enjoyable experience. Yeah. And so ultimately have moved to Queenstown for a lifestyle change. Um, and in doing so also needed to build a house for myself and in reviewing how to build in a cold climate because I've historically lived in very warm places the Auckland area was the coldest I'd ever lived in before mm-hmm. um, so coming to Queenstown was quite different and I was a real fan of anything that you can do modular so I looked at steel framing and steel studs and started there initially and ended up um, realizing that there was, while you could use those materials, there were some significant drawbacks to trying to use them in a way that allowed the house to perform on its own. You were, you were sort of putting weights around its neck by, by using some of those materials. And so um, went back and looked again more closely at timber framing and then how do they keep houses warm in all different parts of the world. And then began to recognize that actually there's some fairly simple principles to follow. And if you follow those, you can build a warm home. And then because I'd done um, leaky building repair for almost five years, um, I came to realize that there was a a significant, based on that, I should say, there was a significant knowledge gap in building remediation. And it became quite clear that there was the same knowledge gap existed in building a thermally efficient home and what it meant. And um, there was still kind of a predominant focus on orientation and solar gain Mm. um, and and passive ventilation. Um, Many of those principles which were introduced and and started to be widely adopted, you know, 20 years ago, but there wasn't really um, 
a huge amount of interest in trying to build the same structure that you would, but build it warm. There was no sort of simple, hey, yes, this is how we build, but if you build it this way for the same cost, you can have a warmer building by doing these few things. There wasn't really a whole lot of interest in that space. And so um, I guess I, because I've had the fortune, good fortune to be able to build a lot of what has interested me, um, I'm, I'm now just focused on um, trying to sort of create a product that meets the needs of the market, but it's a lot better value than what um, you would get if you went to an uninformed um, or not even uninformed, just an uninterested um, party to build your house. You know, my, my focus is on if we, we need to build your house warm because it's your year-round environment, it's your greatest single investment, and yes, it needs to be leak and defect-free, which, yeah. is, which is certainly one side of it. At the same time, your construction needs to be not only compliant with the specific and somewhat unique requirements of the New Zealand Building Code, but also should be very considerate of um, how it's going to impact the way that your home retains its heat and energy and how it also um, deflects the, the, the heat and energy that it'll, um, that'll be focused on it. So that's, that's why I build a warm house. I, I effectively, um, I believe there's a better way to build, and I believe that, there is, that, that those principles don't necessarily don't require a significant cost that difference when you're talking about a certain price point home anyways yeah right we'll come come back to the cost um in a moment but you mentioned at the beginning there that you investigated or you you played around with the huge different uh types of construction including steel and and modular what what were the those weights around the neck of the of some of the other options that you discovered well inherently if you go, if you want to build something like, um, let's say, um, a steel structure, so you just want to use steel portal frames, you want to run them down the house, and you want to make it lightweight steel mm -hmm. and um, insulate it. When you then start looking at your insulating uh, um, solutions, you really want to build a warm wall because you don't want the steel to, to be on the outside of the building. So when you go to build a warm wall, and then you move away from commercial design requirements to residential, um, the, the way that the, the performance of the building changes, the performance um, threshold for the building changes, and suddenly all of your light gauge steel you can't use because it now needs to be structural steel to support all the warm wall system that you're putting around it. Right, and so because a, a warm wall means that you're putting the insulation on the outside of it and keeping the structure warm as opposed to trying to do both in the same plane. Is that right? Yes, correct, correct. And so um, by the time you get to a warm wall solution, then you lose the benefit of the modular construction because you're into heavier steel and right. then you have to put in internal walls and you, you're now building with two different types of steel and so the structures become more complicated, your foundation requirements become more complicated. And so instead of being able to have this very sort of simple um, floating slab with some lightweight steel on it as an alternative to timber, you are into a structural steel building with a with a with quite an expensive exoskeleton going around it with a self-supporting warm wall system ultimately and we couldn't really i couldn't find really a cost-effective solution to that so i then went to look at just light gauge steel on its own and determined that um you know there really wasn't a great solution there either because your conductivity levels were really high so to put that in perspective if you have a um 
a flathead nail mm -hmm. that you've driven through that, that is, we'll call it a 90 mil flathead nail that you've driven through your cedar cladding, through your batten, into your wall, and you're using a 140 mil framed wall, and then you have a 50 mil service cavity inside that 140 frame wall, and you've insulated all of that. There is a two degree difference in temperature on the head of that nail compared to your, the cladding that's adjacent to it. So, and I, uh, the reason I said that isn't some, you know, I, I can't point you to a scientific website. I just went out and did thermal imaging on the house um, right. one day when it was old, after it was constructed. Yeah. And given that if there's that two degree temperature differential, if you think about that nail, yes, it's uninsulated and all that sort of thing, but it is a really small surface area that's exposed and it's, that heat has to travel quite a long ways from inside the center of a piece of timber out to the outside face and there's still a two degree temperature differential there. If you then, then what I discovered, and I just, the only reason I tell that story because it correlates quite well, when you look at the steel stud framing in a house, all that you're really obligated to do under the code is put a 10 mil polystyrene barrier between it. But if you think of how well that nail conducted heat out of your wall to the exterior of your cladding, yeah. um, a steel stud significantly compromises the ability of that wall to perform. So then you're into this heavier insulation again on the exterior. Now, there might have been a solution that would have worked better using steel studs if um, if I had looked if I had been considering Aridon, which wasn't on my radar at the time. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Um, but I haven't investigated Aragon, Aridon, and specifically in relation to steel stud framing. But I would think that that is a good, a potentially a good solution um, if you still run an airtight home and steel stud framing. And, that's a, that's um, an interesting point because essentially what you're saying there is that there's nothing inherently good or bad about steel versus timber, but it's a matter of getting the right system and the right components that are all playing nicely together to get the performance that you want. Absolutely, and I think you know there's, there's I did look at SIPs panels as well. I mean, I looked at a number of things, and some of the decisions as to as to what to actually end up building were not driven directly by the performance of the material, but they were driven by um, the perception of value that the market might place on it. Huh, so, interesting. Um, for, for me, SIPs were still, um, are still quite a, a niche building product, and it's unclear to me as to how the market will respond when you're talk they're talking about purchasing quite an expensive home um, when you tell them that your house is made out of ply and polystyrene. Um, so, what's your thoughts on the in terms of performance? Uh, well, look, I think SIPs panels can perform very well. They they, they require quite a um, a high level of detail to make them work well because um, they're not. Uh, so, so if you're using polyblock, for instance, your ability to to, to make a, a building airtight using polyblock walls is, you know, you, you pretty much can't screw that up. Right. All you've got to do is detail your windows correctly and you're going to have an airtight home. Once you start moving away from that, SIPs panels, despite the fact there's a relatively large surface area to each panel, um, if you don't construct them correctly at all of their joints and termination points, you're still going to have a leaky building. Yeah. So they're, they're not a, they're not a, a slam dunk solution in right. that sense. And they're, and, um, and I think for me, there's still a stigma, a potential for a stigma to be associated with that product. Um, when you're talking about a, a high value home, I think when you're talking about 
a standalone single family residence uh, is probably not too bad from a stigma standpoint, but then your cost to use them probably doesn't really, you don't get the cost to benefit ratio out of it either. Right. Um, Cause you need to be using more of it. Yeah, correct. Well, no, it's just it's just more expensive to build in SIPs than it is to build in traditional framing. Right. While it's supposed to be more cost effective, until there is a sufficient volume of the product on the market to bring the product price point down, and there's sufficient expertise in building efficiently with that product, um, a lot of the time and labor savings aren't being realized um, on site in reality. Mm, so you think and, the promise uh, the promise of affordable housing being uh, produced through prefabricated elements hasn't quite come to fruition in New Zealand yet? No, no. And I, I mean, I look, I think part of that too is you just got to consider scale. So um, if you do a large um, track housing development in, um, in America, for instance, you're doing 800 homes. Yeah. And they're being done in sort of probably four stages. And so you're building 200 homes over the course of, you know, six months to a year. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's the whole project's done in three or four months, three or four years. Um, in New Zealand, there really isn't that volume. And that's only one group. That's only one of many multiple track housing projects being built in a relatively tight geographic area. In New Zealand, you have quite a significant land mass, so the equivalent to the state of California and land size with these very small, you know, houses being built all over the country with a, quite a disparate workforce, mm. a disparate supply chain. And, and that fundamentally is what um, inhibits the ability for um, modular construction to really take hold. So um, polyblock is a great example as well. I mean, polyblock homes, if you're doing three or four homes a week, you can do a home a day practically in polyblock if you're, once you become good at it. But there really isn't, that scale here for polyblock to, to, to reach that cost benefit. Oftentimes it's a builder who does polyblock as part of other things that he does. And so he doesn't have a dedicated crew and a workforce that only does this day in day out. So you're not grinding away and getting all those efficiencies that you really need. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of on a, on a much, much smaller scale, um, um, there's a ceiling system that you can put into an existing timber frame structure, which acts as its fall protection and also um, creates bracing and it's a finished ceiling and also it's a lovely product, right? Um, and typically it takes anywhere from, for a 150 square meter home, you can put a whole ceiling in start to finish in about three hours. Wow. But when the crew, but when the crew starts out doing it, it might take them five hours. You think, oh, well, three hours versus five, that's not too bad. But when you start looking at what that is from a percentage, it's 40% more Mm. more time expended roughly speaking mm. and 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 this is on a relatively simple ceiling system so if you look at modular construction it affects a whole number of components you've got to become very good at it to begin to get all of those efficiencies back so it's not very difficult to be 10 or 15 or 20 percent less efficient and then suddenly the cost model doesn't work any longer so yeah that's yeah. where that's where something like sips falls into the like i think it's a it's got a real um, benefits to it, but I just wonder if on scale and mass, it doesn't really fit into the economic model unless it's being done um, for multiple houses of a very similar sort over and over again. Yeah. You're, you've made a, a business and your branding is very much about uh, providing high quality and, and warm homes, energy efficient, thermally efficient homes. To produce a thermally efficient home, uh, what's more important, the architect or the builder? 
Um, I think fundamentally, um, even with the greatest builder, you cannot make a house warm if the design doesn't support that objective. So while, while a, um, a builder can make a hash of a warm house, it's unlikely that, that if it's designed well, it may not, and it may not perform at a hundred percent, but it'll still probably perform at 85%. Yeah. So, um, I would argue that the design is the fundamental element that needs to be done accurately and correctly for the house to function as it should, um, because a, the builder can only influence um, the accuracy and the efficacy of the work he's done. He cannot influence the way that that building interacts with the environment, the way that the sun it impacts it, and he can't um, um, have any if, um, effect on um, a, a cold, desolate south side of the house versus a warm north side of the house. He, you know, the builder doesn't influence any of those factors. And a house is inherently um, um, passive. It doesn't do anything. It just sits there once it's done. And so it's all the other things that need to happen beforehand to make it work correctly. Mm, mm, interesting. Do you have clients coming to directly to you first or do you typically get your work through architects? Um, the clients predominantly approach us directly and they may or may not have an architect or designer that they're working with already. Right. So, um, and then we simply work with whoever they have, or we put them on to an architect or a designer that we think would suit the requ their requirements. Yeah. And that's where, you know, I guess it all becomes very interesting and they're quite a different conversation altogether, but it's, you know, how do you choose the right, um, design partner to build your home with so that you end up with an outcome that's what you want because um, there is a huge amount of theory around what does and doesn't work and and I guess the, the, be the best base model is to look at a passive house because there's some, some real science and math around the shapes and forms and reasons for what they build yep but not everyone wants to build a home that achieves a passive house standard so then you sort of have that standard sitting to the side and, and now you're saying, well, I want to use a traditional form or a traditional shape, but I want it to be warm. And, and yeah. so you, you, you then are talking about what is the appropriate compromise to get the desired outcome? Because you've already compromised because you're not building a, a, a circle, right? If you were building a sphere, yeah. you'd have the warm thing you could have. Yeah. So you're already, so you, as you begin to move away from the square and you begin to move away from the ideal surface, wall surface to floor, area um, relationship, then you're, you're then asking someone to influence, well, what is the appropriate compromise to make to get the outcome that I want? So for instance, you may have more glazing on the north side than is ideal because you want to take advantage of a view. Mm -hmm. Well, then how does that impact what you do on the south side and the east side and the west side? How does that impact how deep or shallow the room is? How does it impact what floor covering you put on? How does it impact the way that you see the ventilation system circulating around there? And what, where, how, how do the rooms um, relate to one another so that if there is a warm area of the home, does, does it have a way of distributing that warmth um, into the house? So, for instance, if you had quite a shallow house um, and you got a lot of north light um, and it heated up the slab right through the center of the home, um, you may find that the east and west ends of the home are very cold. Right. Yep. By comparison, when I say very cold, I mean a few temperature degrees difference. And I think, but noticeable. Um, but noticeable, yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that's really a challenge is if you build to a passive house standard, you're 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 buying, as I said, a, a sort of a, an established 
set criteria that gives you an established outcome. Yeah. When you start moving away from that, and this is, this is the area that I'm most interested in, when you start building um, a warm house, then, then as I said to you before, you, you're, you're compromising all the design elements. But secondly, you have, you have to sort of understand and work around this very odd concept of comfort because comfort is such a highly subjective term. Yeah. And, and, and then in alignment with that, you have these expectations from the client, which aren't anything that they can clearly articulate or define to you either. So they're saying, we want a warm house. And we want a house that's, you know, we can walk around in and feel comfortable whether we're in the bedroom or we're in the living room or no matter where we are, we want it to be a very consistent temperature. I'm, so, I'm intrigued that you've used that term warm house quite a few times and your website doesn't, I haven't found the word sustainability on the website. Is that something that you, you um, intentionally talk about warmth? Yes, it is. I think because... Um, a warm house is just as fundamental to the design brief as what shape or form you want for your house or how many bedrooms you want. Yeah. If you don't set out at the onset of your design to build a warm house, you won't achieve it. And do you and think people assume that they're going to get a warm house, that, that that's not something that they have to even consider in, in the design? Like surely the code's going to take care of it being warm, right? Same as it's going absolutely. to be take care of it being leaky. <laughs> that, that, correct, correct. I mean, that is a base assumption, and, and people believe that houses are warm, they're built to code, therefore they'll be warm. Um, and you know, that's, that's just a knowledge gap. Um, I equate the average consumer to buying a house, which is probably a little bit jaundiced, but the average consumer to buying a house probably feels it's not too dramatically different than going to your local car dealership. And instead of there being um, cars on the lot, there's pictures of cars and you just pick all your options and you get this great car at the end. Mm, Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, not many people invest in a car without doing a test drive and sitting in it and moving the seats around and testing the dials and seeing what, how the air conditioning works and listening to what the radio does and checking how the windows go up and down and making sure it's got enough room. Um, but fundamentally they're very happy to build a house, um, and invest all this money into a home without ever having interacted with it or understanding how it's really going to perform. And, and typically all they're focused on is how many rooms does it have and how big is it? And that's the equivalent. That's the equivalent of shopping for a car for, with basically four seats, yeah. but not not caring about what size engine it had or what transmission was in it or how big a fuel tank it had or whether it had headlights or not. You know, it's it's really quite a um, an interesting concept when you start thinking about it. Um, Such a good analogy, when yeah. Start, yeah, when you start thinking about the fact that look, I'm not selling you a house product. I'm not selling you something based on this square meter of product yields that much cost. I'm trying to sell to you the opportunity to create a living environment that supports the way that you want to live in your home and interact with your home. And how do you want to be in your home? Do you want to be in a, in a, in a constant climate environment? And, you know, that's sort of where we usually start the question and answer sessions for the clients. Is that what you want? Because if you want that, um, how, how badly do you want that? Do you want passive house? Because that's what gets you this. And if you don't, um, well, what, do you want something in between? Okay, and, and what will you compromise? Are you willing to compromise on your view to, to keep the house in a consistent temperature? No, you're not. Okay, well, are you willing to have less of a view to the south? Good, well, we can compensate for some of that. Yeah. And then we can start walking through and targeting how we may actually interact with the house. But the, 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 the basic public concept, I think, is that if I buy a new house, it's going to be warm, which is a complete fallacy. I mean, it, it, it code minimums work in certain environments, and perhaps I'm, I'm speaking more specifically to central Otago. 
But if you don't build your house appropriately in Central Otago, you're not going to be warm. You're either going to be spending a ton of money on heating it, yeah, or you're simply going to have areas of the home that are warm and you dart off to other parts, or you're going to have your pipes freeze in the walls at certain few times in the winter. Um, and that happens regularly, and, and people don't really talk about it, but it does happen because um, it's just a, it's, a, it's an interesting environment when you're trying to build for a place that is, can be 10 or 12 below zero in winter, and it can be 30 degrees in the summer, um, and you're trying to create a home that supports a relatively consistent temperature environment, that's a challenge. Yeah, I think uh, people often forget about those summer 30-degree days. You think, just think, oh, it's cold. Uh, I need to account for that, but also need to account for keeping it cool as well. Hey, I want to, I, I want to, um, before we finish, I would ask you about um, air tightness because uh, you mentioned passive house and obviously air tightness and ventilation are key parts to that. Um, we've talked a lot on the show about the, the fear of air tightness and um, people being scared of it. Uh, I, I don't want to dwell too much on that because we, we've kind of covered that, but um, how easy is air tightness to achieve in the, during the construction process? Well, I think it, it's, um, there's, there's two ways to answer that. I'll, I'll answer that question slightly differently. So in terms of just achieving air tightness, um, that's not too difficult to achieve um, with someone who has a, some attention to detail and is thinking ahead of how these different plate pieces are going to interact and come together. So mm. your design needs to be considerate of it to, to try to simplify the detailing so the membranes can go where they need to go. Um, you may need to look at alternative products to achieve air tightness in areas where a membrane might be more difficult to install. Yeah. Um, but it can be a, a, an airtight standard can be achieved without a huge amount of um, effort and detail. It's not a it's not a black art or anything. Right. Where yeah. where where I think airtightness often um, probably goes the most awry is not understanding that by building an airtight home, you're changing the traditional environment of a home, and you're therefore changing the way that materials will behave in the home and in the wall structures. And, right. Um, you're changing the environment of a home that's used to traditionally just um, whatever gets led out into the um, environment with the house is able to sort of move its way in and out of the walls at will, depending on how much wind is blowing and, and what's going on in, in the home. And that, you know, you're, um, and when you go to an airtight, suddenly you're controlling the environment and you have to be active in your control of that environment. Um, yep. Passive house is quite funny in that it's actually an active home. Yeah. It is a home yeah. that has to continuously work to manage the internal environment. Um, and, you know, that isn't a drawback. That's just a, that's just a, um, it's just a necessary environment. It's, it's, if we go back to the car analogy, it's, it, it's, you know, if you want to have a car that goes over 20 miles an hour, we recommend you put a windshield in it. And, you know, <laughs> as we increase the performance of a home, and we make it more airtight and we make it warmer, well, then we need to put a windshield in. And that windshield is the ventilation system, that balanced air ventilation system, and that's how you control the environment. And it, is, it operates in the background. You, the, the homeowner can only interact with it at will. Um, but that's what controls and manages the issues that are historically associated with um, defects that can be present in an airtight home. Does that mean that a... That the passive house or a high performance house is is hard to drive. Absolutely not, absolutely not. I mean, it's one of the great things about a high performance house is is that um, you do interact with it initially, and um, oftentimes I think people, and this is what we see in the design process, they get caught up in all this what I'll call bench racing. They look at the, all these performance R value figures and all these wall assemblies 
massively tights and they sort of start adding all all this up and they keep thinking we need to get it, we need to get more airtight we need to get more insulated we need to get it better windows we need to kind of do all these things and they're trying to drive this you know to create this formula one vehicle mm. in their house um and the reality is that you don't have to do that you you can just follow some basic principles and you'll end up with a really warm effective um home that works for you and it isn't a complicated home to interact and work in your systems need to be considered at the beginning at concept stage how are you going to ventilate it once you've got that sussed out then the most difficult thing that you need to do for the first few months is probably decide how you live in the home. So, um, for instance, when we installed the ventilation system, we were recommended to put it on a fan speed of two. So there's a way low, uh, there's a way one, two, and three. Right. Um, and three is the fan boost, is, which is what you, you go to you when you're cooking in the kitchen. There's a switch right next to your oven, your stovetop. You just push that, and for 30 minutes, the fan speed is boosted. Same thing when you go in the shower, you push a button and the fan speed is boosted for 30 minutes and then the fan goes back to its setting. And you can adjust this however you want, but in really simple terms, I just kept playing with the fan speed to understand how we lived in the home and decided ultimately we, in the winter for instance, we didn't want so much air to be moving through the home. So as long as we weren't having issues with odors um, and as long as we didn't have any issues with condensation, we assumed that we were moving enough air in the home to keep it working correctly. Yep. Um, and so once we had managed the bulk issues, so the cooking and the and the um, the shower time by pushing that fan speed button, we, that was the bulk of the condensation issue for the home. We then turned our fan down to low one or away during the winter, which netted us about two degrees in temperature increase within the home by doing that. Um, so the the. It just requires someone who has an interest in how their home performs, but you can be completely disinterested and you still won't really have a challenge with living in your house. Yeah. So it's, it's, but it's kind of like commissioning the house like you would a, a, a commercial property, but then it's also uh, learning what works and, and, and how it works. And I guess you wouldn't have to do that if humans were completely predictable. We'd be able to model it and that would be perfect, but humans aren't predictable. Absolutely not. And, and comfort levels are such an unusual thing as well. I mean, I, I remember um, one morning waking up and it was 17 degrees in the house. And I thought, oh, it's a bit chilly. I wish it was doing better. Um, but that being said, I was complaining about it in, in basically shorts and a T-shirt. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it was, damn, it's and it not was, 23 degrees. It's only 21. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was, it was, you know, but wait, it's frozen outside. outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it was five or six degrees below zero outside. Um, below zero. The, wow. Yeah. So at the same time, the alternative is that someone, um, finds 23 degrees is what their comfort level is. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's a lot more difficult to achieve. Whereas if, if you're happy living between a band of 18 and 20, you, you'll easily find the house easy to live in. And, and you know, um, um, when you, what we have found is it's really that issue about expectation. So um, we have a traditionally formed home. It's built to a warm house standard. It doesn't follow passive house, a passive house standard at all. Um, and so in the south hallway, it's an unheated slab. The south hallway slab is usually about three degrees cooler than the slab anywhere else in the home. So as a result, the um, south end, the south side of the house is about two degrees cooler than the rest of the home, fairly consistently. And so you feel that temperature difference. It's yeah. not um, 
it's not um, off-putting, but you think, oh, it's a bit cooler down here than it is over there. Um, but you still happily move around the house. You're not rushing through the hallways. You're living in one complete environment. Yeah. Um, which is um, where I think often expectations of the client need to be understood at the very beginning because there is that, yes, we're living in a warm home. Yes, it's lovely. But I mean, if you're going to be picky, you're going to say, well, it's 19 or it's 20 in my living area and it's 17 or 18 in the hallway. Um, gosh, I wish it wasn't two degrees different. And that's, those are your sort of problems when you build a warm house as opposed to building something that's code compliant in the same environment where um, you're waking up and it's four degrees in your room. Right. So, yeah, because if it's four degrees or six degrees, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just yeah, cold. exactly. Same temperature exactly. difference, and but that, irrelevant. Yes. And that's where I think often um, people really don't have an appreciation for the difference between a code minimum and a warm house. And a passive house, again, is a step above. But if you were to look at a code minimum, um, we've got a number of um, very cheap sort of laser thermometers out with different people in different sorts of homes to yeah. just call us back periodically. This is how my house is performing. So 30-year-old, single-glazed house, the, the, the glass and frame temperature in the morning can be four below zero, five below zero. On the inside? The wall on the inside. Wow. Um, whereas at our place, same external temperatures. We might even be a couple degrees colder. The internal frame of the, of the window is 17 degrees, typically. That's so not an aluminum frame, I'm guessing. That's an aluminum, unbroken, single-glazed frame. You go to a double-glazed frame, and you might be two or three degrees. You might be four, but you're still and, at a really cold end of the spectrum. And what are your frames? Our frames are, are um, PVC, European PVC joinery. Right. Triple-glazed. Yeah. Um, but I will say that we've done tests on the double glazing and the triple glazing, and there's not a dramatic difference. I would actually say that the biggest difference between triple glazing and double glazing is small in terms of temperature differential, so a few percent. Yeah. Few, you know, it's a difference of about one or two degrees. Um, but the biggest difference is in noise um, and yeah. then heat gain. Yeah, heat gain and noise are the two biggest benefits. To oh, and heat gain as well—that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess with all these things, you're going to get diminishing returns at some point, and that's yes. that's where people, like you say, if you're just chasing the numbers, there's a danger there that you you overreach in some areas and and just blow the budget completely. Um, yeah, and for and and for again, you know, the difference between and this is the conversation that we have most often is we really try to understand. Are you interested as a client in going 90 miles an hour or are you interested in going 94? Because to go past 90 gets really expensive. Yeah, yeah. And if, yeah. And if, you, and if you're happy at 85 miles an hour, well, then it's even more cost effective. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's really just trying to understand where that line sits for a client. And I think where, from a customer standpoint, the challenge exists is that um, there is no real benchmark to go to in the market where they can say, hey, how do these different things work? And so, mm. um, to that end, we are we are, the reason we I keep referencing Warm House is that we're working with a group of people on something called the Warm House Project here in Central Otago. Nice. We identify a performance, a recommended performance standard for the construction of your home that is about performance, but is driven by cost. So, um, once you get to a certain level of home, you have a lot of options without really much cost difference. It, when you when you look at a code minimum house and then you say, well, I want to make it warm, 
despite what's often talked about, um, there's a lot more than 10% cost difference to start making a code-compliant house warm. Um, and some of that is in form. You know, if you get good form, you can hugely increase the performance of the home. But the second mm -hmm. part is that there's just some systems that you have to have that are relatively costly. And when you're working in a small building foot, foot, footprint, um, they add a, quite a large percentage of cost. So if you're putting in a fifteen or $16,000 um, ventilation system into a home that's um, 100 square meters, you know, that's a, that's a big difference to your cost per square meter. Yeah, and, and that's the, ch the problem of the co cost per square meter as a metric, I guess, is that your, your absolute cost is, is going up the same, but the real estate market seems to have put this metric out there that it's all about cost per meter, which on a smaller house you're going to be um, handicapped already. Yes, correct. I mean, it's, what's quite funny is, you know, we every time a house has a very large garage, it seems very cheap to build. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's, I mean, that whole cost-benefit thing is probably a whole other conversation, but you, you mentioned something else there about the expectation of a standard home and people don't really know what to expect beyond that. And I, and I guess that loops back to your, your previous analogy that, that people just haven't, ever had the chance to test drive anything other than a, a standard home and then that, that's really what they're used to and, and I don't know what the solution is for that other than getting people to come around and stay at places like yours but you know, the more people kind of need to experience a, a high performance home, wake up on those cold, cold mornings in their shorts and t-shirt to, to really understand what that feels like. Absolutely and you, it's very difficult to to convey the lifestyle difference because mm. that is really at the heart of why I'm so interested in this space is the lifestyle Ooh. difference. And on a personal level, it had a huge impact. So um, my wife loves to sleep with electric blanket on. Yeah. Um, and in Auckland, where we lived in, in Pukekohe, um, that electric blanket was on, you know, for most of winter and part of fall and part of spring. Wow. Yeah. Um, and here we are, we're in Queenstown and electric blanket is basically never used. Yeah. And her, her requirements haven't changed. What she finds comfortable hasn't changed, but the environment around her is lifted up so much. And, you know, if, if, if we use my wife as an example and say that she's the every woman or every person for them, a consumer standpoint, yeah. she said if she could have voted at the beginning of the project, whether we were going to go to all this effort to make this home warm, she would have said, no, let's just build what we have to build to get a house constructed. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. After living in it, and after living in it for about two weeks, it, it might not even have been that long, but after living in it for two weeks, she said, I would never go back to a standard house. Yeah. And that's, to me, that is a fairly a fundamental indicator of just how big the performance gap is. Yeah. Because we talk, we're talking about temperature at the moment, and we touched about it for a moment in triple glazing, but the house environment is quieter. It's calmer. Because it's airtight, it is quieter in and of itself. As yep. a result of being trying to build to an airtight standard, your home is constructed more effectively. As a result of trying to think about how the house interacts with the environment, you're then looking at the performance equation. So you're not doing a space planning exercise. So you, you know, to put it to be very crude about it, um, you know, you do space planning when you're trying to build cubicles inside of an office to make for efficient use of space. Yeah. Most to squeeze the most time, number of people in there. Correct. And oftentimes, a house design process is a lot about what's the space planning look like, okay, and then how does it look from the outside? 
those two criteria um, are often the, the leaders in the design process. Yeah. I think they, that's not their role. They're, they're, those are secondary roles. Um, oftentimes, we have people coming to us, we want a house that's this size. And the first thing I say to them is, well, why don't you tell me how you want to live in your home, and then we'll worry about the size of it later. Yeah. Because you tell me you want 300 square meters. Well, what if you only need 230 to do what you want it to do? And, mm. and we, you, just, you just have been looking at inefficient designs. Yeah. Or what yeah. if you need 340, and you're going to have to decide whether really what you're asking for is appropriate for that size? Well, chances are if someone comes to you with a number like that, they've been looking at real estate listings. Absolutely. And they, you know, they often say, what's your cost per square meter? And, and this is where you know, I say, fundamentally, look, we're not selling a product. I'm, I'm yeah. not a product salesman. Yeah. I'm, 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 I construct an environment for you to live in. Yeah. And yeah. where I can, I work with the designers to make sure that the principles that we want to see in your living environment are reflected in the way that the design is is created so that it caters to those living principles that you feel are important to you. And look, I think passive house is for people who are passionate about that space. Mm -hmm. Warm house is for the everyday person. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Hey, uh, that's probably a good um, spot to leave it, Dennis, because uh, I could carry on because <laughs> you're a very smart builder and I, I just wish and I know that a lot of my um, listeners to the show would love to find a builder who understands this stuff and is so passionate about it as you obviously are in their location. But not everyone's going to be that lucky uh, at the moment. Exactly. Um, but if you are in central Otago, <laughs> then you are the man. What's, uh, what's the best way that people can get in touch with you or find out more? Uh, I suppose it's always a good starting point to look at our website yep. um, at um www.dcd.co.nz yep. um, but I'm not adverse to people simply picking up the phone and, and reaching out to me on 021-816-618 awesome. and um, if you don't hear from me send me a brief text and I'll um, call back to you call you back right hey well thank you very much for your time really appreciate it thanks cool hey now um, just before you go yes. we, I haven't mentioned uh, um, Proclimber at all <laughs> No. Um, can I just ask you real, real quickly then um, about about that? Why? What do you like most about uh, ProClimber? There, are, there are several different products on the market, and I suppose ProClimber um, benefits from brand leadership. Mm -hmm. um, also, they have um, quite a good R and D process. And I suppose fundamentally, I'm fairly risk adverse. So while I'm very open to trying new things and looking at things differently and trying to create a new way of, of getting from A to B, um, I don't necessarily like doing that on untested or untried products. Yeah. And ProClima has you know, a very long time of being in the market. So while it's relatively new to the New Zealand market, it's been in the market for a long time and it's in a lot of very large markets and it does very well. And, it, and as a result of that, it has a system that goes with it. It has a process to follow. It's, it, you can see videos on how it works. People have an understanding of it. It's a relatable um, product to those in the industry who are building in this space. Um, so as a result, um, it's very easy to get any information that you want on it. And further to that, when you come across something, because New Zealand loves to build bespoke architecture, when you come to something that's a little d d different or unique, oftentimes 
if there isn't a direct um, comparison that's been done before, there is at least the knowledge resource bank to get that information to you um, that addresses your specific concern. Um, and, and, you know, funnily enough, one of the main reasons that I like ProClimate is I really like their tapes. Um, I've really, there's only one other tape in the market that I would use um, aside from ProClimate. Um, but their tapes are fantastic. They're easy to use. They're, um, they adhere very well. And I have had a zero incident rate of failure using them, which, um, as I said, I only have one other tape that I would use. But from an adhesive, from a sheet adhesive standpoint, there is nothing else in the market that I've used except for one other product that comes close to how ProClima tapes perform. And because the construction method that is used is so reliant on tape, that is the, the underlying um, defect potential exists in the, in the glue and the adhesion of those tapes. And um, from the testing that I've done, the bond just continues to grow as it should with a good contact adhesive. Nice. And second to that, um, because you're working in a detail area, if you, you need to be able to um, be confident that a quality control process actually functions as it should. So yeah. um, by way of example, when someone's put the tape on, I can very easily see if they've properly brought the tape into contact with the paper. If they have, then I know there won't be a defect. Whereas I've worked with other products where you have to test, you have to physically test to see if you're getting adhesion consistently across it, not just in areas which might appear to have a defect. Right. Um, and that's a huge improvement for, and a huge sort of peace of mind when you're installing something that is not observable ever during the course of its life in terms of how it's going to perform. Dennis Dowling there, finishing up, uh, explaining why he uses ProClimber for building his high-performance homes. And uh, he's down in Queenstown. And I'm on the search, I'm on the hunt for people similar to Dennis building high-quality homes all around New Zealand and Australia as well. Um, if you are one of those people, if you know of one, then please get in touch because my mission is to help make a better place to live. And it's going to be people like Dennis that are leading the way in achieving that goal out in the, where it counts. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, tune in for another episode next week. You can find or you will be able to find the show notes for this episode over at homestylegreen.com forward slash 145, episode 145. Uh, that's it for now. Now go make a better place to live. <laughs> <laughs>